we were flying low above the treetops. In mid-air, the pilots received a sealed envelope with the precise coordinates for where we were going to pick up the FARC leader. And I remember us flying down a river, and around the bend of that river, we saw a thin smoke column that indicated the place where the helicopter was going to land. I remember clearly when we flew out of that area, we told him to which airport we were flying, and he responded, ah, we're going into the lion's den. From the Oslo Forum, Welcome to The Mediator's Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today became a salmon smuggler in his efforts to end one of the longest wars in Latin America, and a chance encounter he had with a young guerrilla helped define the peace agenda in Colombia. Dagny Landa, the diplomat who led peace talks between FARC rebels and the government in Bogota, Welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much, Adam. Great to be here. Good to have you with us. I'd like to take you back 20 years to the early days of your diplomatic career. The European Union was a big issue, and yet you chose to go to serve as a diplomat in Argentina rather than in Europe. What attracted you to South America? So I applied for a job as a young diplomat at the Norwegian Embassy in Buenos Aires, and I spent a couple of fantastic years there. It was extremely interesting. So I enjoyed everything that Buenos Aires had to offer. And in addition to that, I learned some tricks of the trade in terms of uh, diplomatic work. So that was really the starting point of my diplomatic career abroad and the starting point of my engagement in Latin America. Later on, you focused on Colombia. And I'd like to talk about the peace process there between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas. Take us back to 2010, when President Santos had just been elected and you received a message from one of his envoys. What exactly happened? I worked early on on Colombian issues from the year of 2006. I was the head of mission at the Norwegian embassy in, in Bogota, was engaged in the peace process with the ELN, the National Liberation Army. And then having left the embassy in 2008, I was working in Oslo. And one day I got a call from a good friend in Colombia, who turned out to be one of President Santos, who was recently elected as the new president in Colombia. He was one of the president's secret peace envoys, and he asked to meet me in Madrid. So with great curiosity, I flew down to Madrid and met with him at a hotel. And he basically shared with me that there were some ambitions in Bogota in terms of starting peace talks with the Colombian guerrilla and wanted to know whether Norway would be willing to assist in any such peace process. I remember uh, clearly um, early on the envoys were talking about a peace process that would not take that long. We had our doubts in Oslo that it would take as short as some people were hoping, but it never crossed my mind that I would spend five years of my time in Colombia and, and Cuba. Walk us through some of the early stages of that process, and in particular, how you set about building trust with the, with the FARC. Well, the very early stages of that process, we had secret meetings with the FARC together with delegates from Cuba. 
and with the Colombian government. And those meetings were taking place in Venezuela in total secrecy. And a lot of that time was spent not only agreeing on starting peace talks, but also agreeing on the modalities for getting FARC commanders out of Colombia and to Cuba in a safe manner. And talk me through some of your first interactions with the FARC, either their leaders or soldiers. How did you get a feel for what really mattered to them? Well, I I think I'll then take us back to early 2012. We were flying early morning on the eastern plains of Colombia in a helicopter with ICRC insignia, flying low above the treetops. In mid-air, the pilots received a sealed envelope with the precise coordinates for where we were going to pick up the FARC leader. And I remember us flying down a river and around the bend of that river, we saw a thin smoke column that indicated the place where the helicopter was going to land. And after we landed, it was extremely quiet, very early in the morning, very, very hot. We saw slowly emerging around 20 FARC soldiers in new uniforms with modern weapons. And they told us we had to wait for around half an hour until the FARC leader would arrive to that spot. And while we were waiting, I struck up a conversation with a young guerrilla fighter, a young lady, and I understood her to have joined the FARC in late uh, teenage years, maybe 14, 15 years old. So she had been in the FARC for around 10 years, as far as I can remember. And she told me a couple of interesting things. She said the first motivation is to fight for more even distribution of land in Colombia. And the second motivation is to fight for political inclusion and political representation. And those two elements, land issues and political participation, in effect, became the two first agenda items that were negotiated secretly in Havana later on. And that told me a number of things, including it told me that whatever we had heard about the FARC previously from previous administrations, from the international community, that the FARC, the only thing that remained of the FARC was really a group of narco-terrorists. It turned out that the FARC was also at that point strongly politically driven. And I remember clearly when we flew out of that area with that particular FARC leader who was called the doctor, he asked, where are we going? And told him to which airport we were flying. And he responded, ah, we're going into the lion's den. So You know, any peace process is undertaken with great personal risk, you know, security-wise and politically for the participants, be they from government or from an armed group, as in this case, uh, the FARC. And once you had built that trust and brought the parties to negotiations, you decided to hold those in the Cuban capital, Havana, to create an almost retreat-like atmosphere, it sounds. Paint us a picture. I understand that they took place, uh, the talks, uh, by a lake outside of Havana. What did that all look like? The Cubans set us up in, in a wonderful area surrounding a small lake. There were houses or 
small villas surrounding the lake. Each delegation w- would be installed in one villa each. And people would be able to roam freely within that enclosed area, running, jogging, bicycling around the lake early in the morning or late in the evening when there were no talks. And that would also provide both parties with the space for more casual encounters. On the first night in Havana, when the two delegations met, we organized a small get-together together with the Cubans. The Norwegians brought some Norwegian salmon, the Cubans brought some Cuban rum, and we were nervous, the Cubans were nervous, the FARC was nervous, and the Colombian government representatives were nervous, but it didn't take more than a couple of minutes before the two delegations and the persons interacted personally. Obviously, they have lots of shared common history, and Colombians are social beings, so uh, the icebreaker in the Colombian peace process was relatively quick and simple. And so this is your contribution to salmon diplomacy plus Cuban rum as the means to put everyone at ease. Yes, that's uh, right. We were bringing quite a lot of Norwegian salmon into Cuba during that particular phase of the peace process until the moment when Colombian newspapers started to write about Norwegian salmon diplomacy. And that, at that point, we understood that we probably needed to tone down the salmon smuggling to Cuba. Perhaps one of the toughest issues you had to crack was disarmament. How, broadly speaking, did you approach that? Well, Adam, this was obviously one of the very, very hard questions in the peace process. And the Colombian government was very clear from the outset that they wanted the FARC to hand over their weapons to some entity, preferably a Colombian government entity. And the FARC was adamant against it, obviously. They did not want to hand over their weapons to anyone, particularly not the Colombian government. So... The issue of how to frame the issue of the weapons came to a uh, small crisis in the secret phase of the talks when the government continued insisting on the FARC handing over the weapons until the point that the FARC said no and the government left the table, packed their bags and was uh, literally on their way to the airport. And in these kinds of circumstances, it's obviously the third party actors like Cuba and Norway in this case that has to set themselves in action. So we shuttled intensively between the two delegations while the government was waiting for their transport to the airport. So this was really, really getting very, very close to the end of the whole peace process before it had really started. And then at some point, someone came up with the expression dejación de armas, which translates in English into laying down of weapons. But in Spanish, it's really much more subtle and flexible expression. And it gave the parties the ambiguity they needed, dejación de armas, laying down their weapons, really a relatively passive term, which don't really describe how the weapons are being laid down and possibly to whom they are being laid down to. So this ambiguity served the parties and became the operative wording of the framework agreement in 2012. And I understand that later on, one of the other thorny issues was that of justice for the victims of the conflict. How did you deal with thorny problems like that? In this very early phase, in the secret phase, you know, there was a limited number of people around the table. Five, I think it was five from the FARC, five from the government. The government clearly had the whole state apparatus in their back. The FARC delegation did not have the same knowledge about all the issues and particularly not about legal issues such as transitional justice. So we spent quite some time trying to pin down how we could include the issue of transitional justice 
in the agenda. And in a particular coffee break, I remember someone was standing outside talking with the FARC and uh, telling them that the real point of transitional justice is the victims. You have to put the victims at uh, the center. And then after the coffee break, the doctor walks back to the negotiating room, sits down at the table and taking the floor and saying the important thing is to work for the victims. Let's put victims at the center. And that was exactly what was written in the text, victims at the center. And that became a central part of the peace talks uh, going forward. Both parties really understood that if you want to put victims at the center, you have to bring them to the table. They have to sit at the table and the parties need to listen to them and their inputs. So that is in effect what happened. So we brought around 60 victims from Colombia to Havana in different delegations who would tell their stories and give their recommendations to the parties. And I remember one particular victim called Leiner Palacios. I remember meeting him both in Havana and in his hometown on the Pacific coast of Colombia, a small, small town called Bojaya, a dense, dense, very hot jungle area where there are no roads, only waterways, and where that village had suffered an attack by the FARC. And many, many people got killed, and many of them from Lehner's own family. And the way he spoke about not his personal losses, but how he and the victims could contribute to settling the armed conflict was uh, was deeply deeply moving so you've made all of those efforts stag to move the negotiations forward finding compromises where possible trying to make sure that the voices of those who are affected by the conflict are, are represented and you've made progress uh, in havana over the course of a couple of years but then there were some serious setbacks uh, at one point the FARC kidnapped a general at another, they launched an attack which led to a resumption of airstrikes from the Colombian Air Force. Tell us about that difficult period. Every peace process has its crisis, and the Colombian peace process had a number of them. And you mentioned two of the most serious ones. The one during a self-imposed unilateral ceasefire by the FARC, where basically a uh, group of FARC soldiers ambushed a group of Colombian soldiers while they slept. I think 11 of them were killed. This created a huge uproar in Colombia and President Santos had to suspend the peace talks and he reinstalled aerial bombings of FARC encampments, killing around uh, 40 FARC soldiers, including two FARC members that had been participating around the peace table in Havana. That created clearly a a political crisis in Colombia, and it created a huge crisis around the table in Havana and uh, impacted everyone I saw. I saw people crying, you know, tears in their eyes, not only because uh, years of work possibly was in vain and the peace talks were collapsing, but also for the loss of human life and possibly the two parties falling back into conflict. And after all the efforts to overcome the setbacks, after more than five years of talks, finally agreement was reached. What was the signing ceremony like in 2016? This was basically the prelude to the referendum. The Colombians had organized a big signing event in a beautiful coastal city, a Caribbean part of uh, Colombia, Cartagena. And with many, many invitees, everyone dressed in white. The uh, United Nations Secretary General was there. Secretary John Kerry was there. The Norwegian Foreign Minister was there. The Cubans were 
obviously there, the two parties were there, Timochenko, the leader of the FARC, President Santos was there. This was an event that was designed to be produced for TV, and it was designed to be convinced the few that needed to be convinced that people had to vote in favor of the peace agreement in the coming uh, referendum. So that was really a historic moment, that day, a beautiful day in Cartagena. And after the peace agreement had been signed by the two parties, the president and the head of the FARC, it was time for speeches. And in the middle of Timochenko's speech, I think uh, around the moment he was asking for forgiveness for crimes committed, we heard a very loud explosion-like sound and everyone was almost throwing themselves to the ground. And I remember seeing Timochenko hunching down behind the microphone, clearly scared. He didn't understand what was going on and neither did we. But it turned out that uh, three, as far as I remember, very low-flying fighter jets had just crossed the stage at supersonic speed and created this huge sound. And Timochenko was, uh, after a couple of seconds, he understood what had happened and he said uh, dryly, at least uh, this time they're not dropping bombs in our heads. And he continued uh, the speech. So that episode shows that there were those who were opposed to the agreement. And then in the referendum, a small majority of the Colombian people rejected it. Were you taken aback by that result after all the work you had done? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was a huge disappointment, obviously, for many, many Colombians, but also for us. You know, I personally had spent, you know, five, six, more close to 10 years of my life with Colombia and the Colombian armed conflict. And the fact that the referendum didn't turnout as we wanted was a huge personal setback, political setback, and potentially a huge humanitarian setback for Colombia. So that was not uh, not a good day. And do you think there's any lessons there for how peace processes are negotiated, it being sort of fundamentally elite exercise, but also one that needs to, at the end of the day, carry some public support? Yes, probably. But at the same time, I think it's difficult to find a peace process that has been more inclusive than what the Colombian peace process was, but you can never do enough in terms of informing and including different sectors of, of society. Uh, clearly, what was, what was happening in Colombia was that very powerful sectors were against, including former President Uribe, and the enemies of the peace agreement basically used social media extremely effectively to spread lies about the content of the peace agreement and what it would lead to. And as we all know, lies on social media is very effective and extremely difficult to combat. But that is probably one lesson learned from Colombia, that you have to take it seriously and, and do as much, much more, as much as you can to fight misinformation on social media. But that was really what turned a very small percentage in the Colombian referendum. And for yourself, Dag, you've given most of your life to this sort of work and you know, there's no doubting the commitment that you've made. But have there been moments when the obstacles were so great that you considered throwing in the towel? Yes and no. I think, you know, everyone who's engaged in this kind of work, you know, on a constant basis need to evaluate whether you're bringing anything positive to the table. And I try to convince myself that's what I'm doing doing that evaluation every day. 
And many times during the peace process with the FARC, I considered leaving and letting the team work on without me. One of those instances, clearly, when I thought this was the end of it and it was a very unhappy ending, was the day of the referendum in Colombia. But at that moment, you know, we had been doing this for five years. We told ourselves, let's try to do this for a couple of more months, see if we can renegotiate the agreement and get it uh, through Congress. And that is, in effect, what President Santos and Timochenko decided to do. And Dag, were there any other broader lessons from this experience? We often say that Norway is not willing to do anything unless we're convinced that the parties are willing to negotiate a settlement that is mutually acceptable. But having said that, it's clear that expression of that willingness could take different forms and evolve over time. And I think it's very important not to underestimate the power of, of a process because people really change during a peace process. Dialogue changes people. And we have often seen that what seemed impossible for a party six months back, two years back, five years back, seems possible today. And that dynamic of a process is something that we should never underestimate. So what seems impossible today could really become possible tomorrow. So Dag, I'd like to ask you about the particular style of Norwegian diplomacy. You pride yourself on promoting peace through discreet facilitation of talks. Explain to a general listener how that works. Yes, that's true. Discretion is a key component of what we try to do. Um, I try to rarely figure in the news and the headlines. We work low-key under the radar, often with low-level or mid-level diplomats. So that is really something that sets us apart from many other actors, I would say, in, in addition to a couple of other elements that we value. And one of those other elements is our long-term commitment to the parties through good days and bad days. Often a conflict is not resolvable for years. It's not mature. And you have to be there when there are nobody else that believes the conflict is mature to be uh, settled. And that really takes stamina. You need a system that encourages and values the commitment of often young diplomats, as I said, working for years and years on the same conflict. Secondly, I think what sets us apart from many others is an ability to take quick decisions. The distance between a diplomat in the field working on a peace process and the foreign ministry in Oslo is very short. Only takes only a text message or a quick phone call. Uh, sometimes directly to the minister to get the clearance we need to move uh, forward on specific issues. And thirdly, we work closely with Norwegian and international NGOs, humanitarian NGOs, NGOs working on human rights, or indeed organizations that are specialized on mediation, such as Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, obviously, and uh, the Norwegian Center for Conflict resolution. So being able to draw on those organizations is also a key aspect of the work that we do around the world. And yourself, Dag, being one of those mid-level diplomats who, as you say, flies under the radar, what would you say are the pros and cons of that approach compared to, say, the UN, which tends to appoint those of a higher profile? Well, I, I would limit myself to speaking to the pros. There are 
probably are some cons, but the pros in our case, at least, outweighs the cons significantly. Well, it gives us flexibility. It gives us creativity, moving below the radar and often pushing the parties to take ownership of their own process. And we often say this that to the parties that they really need to be in the driver's seat of the process. And sometimes we can see when the mediator is being pushed to the forefront of things also in the media, there are sometimes the tendency of one or both parties leaning back and looking at the mediator and expecting the mediator to come up with um, the golden solution in every situation. And I don't think that's good for a process and it's certainly not good for the sustainability of that process. So the party's own ownership to a process is uh, important to us while we work quietly in the background and nudging the process forward. So the profile of Norwegian mediators often fits this philosophy. There are exceptions, of course. We sometimes deploy more hard-hitting heavyweighters. Erik Solheim in Sri Lanka uh, comes to mind as one of those examples. So if you were to go back in time then and, and meet the 10-year-old Dagny Landa, would you uh, advise him to, to go into mediation or steer him off it? Well, I'm not sure. You know, on good days, I would definitely advise him to do this. On bad days, I would tell him do something completely different because it comes with lots of sacrifices. And I really, I, the life of diplomats, in spite of what many people believe, it comes with lots of sacrifices because you spend quite a lot of time away from your home and often away from your family. So it's not always easy, but uh, most of the time it's very rewarding. Well, thank you, Dag, for sharing with us your experiences. Thank you for joining us today on the show. Thank you very much, Adam. It has been a pleasure. That was Dag Nylander in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you've enjoyed your time in the Mediator Studio, why not recommend it to a friend and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts? Please do continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace and listen to other episodes at osloforum.org. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.